I next met with Dr. Hope Rugo, and to begin, I asked her about a special area of her research interest, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and she commented on which non-protocol situations she uses this strategy in addition to patients with locally advanced disease. The standard criteria for neoadjuvant therapy is patients who can't have breast conserving surgery to try and convert them based on the NSABP data to less surgery versus more. But what we've learned, of course, is that patients who respond well to neoadjuvant therapy have an excellent outcome. We've also learned from a number of trials that varying chemotherapy based on early response using our standard agents does not clearly alter outcome, basically because we're already using our best drugs up front. So for example, the JEPAR group in Germany has triaged patients based on early response, and they have some suggestions that the highest risk group might do better if you triage based on response, but it's not by any means clear. So how do we put those two things together? I think that It's clear that if a patient has locally advanced disease, we may be able to convert them to less surgery. So that's a clear reason to do neoadjuvant therapy. Within that group, we don't want to do neoadjuvant therapy in the patients who have very hormone receptor positive, very slow-growing disease, because those patients will not be converted to have breast-conserving surgery. So I think we want to be very careful to understand the biology up front. That kind of leads into the issue of, you know, genomic predictors of response to chemo. And, of course, a lot of people are used to thinking that through the oncotype paradigm in terms of low risk, high ER, low proliferation, HER2 negative situations where I guess we're learning that people are not that sensitive to chemotherapy. Well, I don't know that we have concluded that there's no sensitivity to chemotherapy. I think that we know that there is a group of tumors who have very little response to chemotherapy and where we aren't shrinking the tumors much in the neoadjuvant setting so that, you know, we really can't achieve that goal. If your primary goal is to convert somebody to breast-conserving surgery, that's not appropriate. I think we're still in a muddy area when we have a patient, for example, an example patient is a woman who was just postmenopausal, who had a large tumor with an inverted nipple, who had been sort of doctor shopping for a couple of months. She didn't want to do chemotherapy. She didn't want to have a mastectomy. So she was low risk by mammoprint. I gave her neoadjuvant hormone therapy. You know, six months into it, she had a nice response by MRI, and she said, I'm not ready to do surgery yet. I'm going to wait. So, you know, every month I'm saying, okay, you need to do surgery. So finally, I said, I wouldn't give her any more hormone therapy until she did her surgery. So a year later, she did surgery. She had 18 positive axillary lymph nodes. So this is a difficult situation. I know she's low risk. I gave her hormone therapy. Her primary tumor did respond some. It shrunk down, but she still had a lot of disease, and it was a year. So I told her, you know, I don't know that chemotherapy is going to benefit you, but I think you should get adjuvant chemotherapy because you have a lot of positive nodes. Now, I think in the neoadjuvant setting, we don't want to give chemotherapy, but we may be in a situation where we're still giving it in the adjuvant setting because of bulk of disease. It kind of leads into the sort of biology versus anatomy concept. And again, I think people are particularly hearing a lot about this as it relates to oncotype at this point. We'll see what happens with other predictors in the future. 
And, you know, now there are people who do raise the question of whether or not we ought to be using these kinds of predictors and deciding about chemotherapy as the risk increases. So larger node negative tumors, node positive tumors. And the other side is, well, maybe there's a slight benefit, you know, that you don't want to sort of leave on the table, so to speak. Where do you stand on this kind of issue? Well, I think it's an interesting question. So from the data we have at present, it seems that the genomics are important and the clinical pathologic criteria are important. There was a fascinating comparison between adjuvant online and the recurrence score looking at the patients in the trans-ATAC trial, where it appeared that each test, there's some concordance, but each test has its own independent value in terms of predicting outcome. They have outcome on those patients. And also, when you look at the work by Tang, where they took the data from the recurrence score in the NSABP trials, and they looked at the clinical pathologic criteria, and they did two analyses, they found that the risk of recurrence varied based on the clinical pathologic criteria. And they devised a tool where you could combine the recurrence score and the bulk of disease and come up with a more accurate representation of that patient's risk of recurrence. So that makes perfect sense to us. But then the second analysis, which was, does the clinical pathologic criteria affect the chance of responding to chemotherapy? The answer to that was no. And that also makes perfect sense. Biology drives response, but the two combined drive your prognosis. So actually, Genomic Health now has a tool, which will be public soon, where you can go online and put into the tool the clinical pathologic factors and the recurrence score and get a much better idea of what the risk of recurrence is for that patient. So for example, I'll get an email about a patient who has a 0.8 centimeter tumor, ER positive, you know, 65 years old, but a higher recurrence score, not very high, but say high intermediate. And what you have to do when you're thinking about chemotherapy benefit in that patient is adjust it for the risk of recurrence. Because let's say you had a 50% reduction. If your risk of recurrence is 3%, that's still a small benefit. So if your risk of recurrence is very high, a smaller benefit, like a 20% benefit, if you have multiple positive nodes, may be worthwhile. So I think that you have to use both when you're trying to determine the benefits of therapy and make decisions as a team. I'm really looking forward to seeing that new tool because, you know, I can see there's been a lot of interest in the idea. You know, they had the RSPC. I forget what the thing that's was. That's what the tool is, RSPC. Right, yes. And that, that, it's you know, actually great. I've been a beta tester, and it's wonderful. Well, that's great because I never really kind of got it, so to speak, when I was reading the RSPC data. But now the way you explain it makes perfect sense. So, hmm. That's really interesting. So and essentially, it helps the you patients use, a lot. Yeah, no, it's just I don't know that you could have gotten that out of the old papers, so to speak. No, but no. the way the methodology you talk about, that's very, very cool. And that really leads into this issue of what do you do when you have a very high risk clinical situation, multiple positive nodes, and yet you've got a genomic reading that you have a tumor that's not likely to have much benefit from chemo, a very low score, for example, oncotype. 
Well, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that the validation about chemotherapy benefit is all in lower risk tumors. I mean, node negative. We have a little bit of data in node positive, and I think the chance that you're going to be cured by chemotherapy when you have multiple positive nodes and a very slow growing tumor is small. Hormone therapy is your key treatment in that setting. However, as I was saying before, let's say you have a very small benefit mm -hmm. from chemo, but sure. a really high risk. That math may still drive you to do chemotherapy. So my thought of that now is, and the way I approach patients, is that we don't have enough data to forego chemotherapy in these very high-risk situations, and the benefit is still probably worthwhile for most patients. There are certainly patients we all have, these older women who can't get chemotherapy, who have 16 positive nodes, where we have them on hormone therapy for eight years without recurrence. Right. So we know that there are patients for whom chemotherapy is probably adding a very small amount. But right now, I don't think we're ready to forego that. It kind of brings me back to the neoadjuvant setting about who we recommend, because I think that we know that the patients who have higher risk tumors, more chance of responding to chemo, we can convert some to breast conserving surgery. So that's one reason. A second reason is cosmesis. So in a patient who can have breast conserving surgery, but for whom the cosmetic results are unlikely to be fabulous, you may be able to shrink the tumor and get a much better surgical outcome. And that's particularly true in, say, tumors that are very highly proliferative. And then there's a third setting where you may want to do neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and I think that this is where the controversy comes in. These are patients who have you know, more rapidly growing tumors, so high-risk ER-positive, triple-negative, HER2-positive tumors, where if you treat in the neoadjuvant setting, even if they could have had breast-conserving surgery, you have some information about what the response to therapy is. Now, the argument against that has been, we don't know what to do with that information right now. But my argument to the contrary is that that's not important to me because it's the patient I have in front of me that I want to have that information because maybe in the future there will be additional information in the near future that will alter my post-surgery treatment. So I'd much rather know what I'm doing in vivo than to treat in the absence of information in the adjuvant setting. Since I know that the outcome is the same, I don't see any benefit in doing surgery up front. You know, the NSCPP trials and others have really demonstrated that we can safely give chemotherapy up front. So if we know we're gonna give the chemotherapy, why not give it first? It gives us important information. Let me ask you about one more general thing before we get to your cases, because I do think, you know, in terms of systemic therapy, there's some things that are more relevant to surgeons than others. And I think one thing that's real, real relevant is the ATLAS trial that was presented in December at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, looking at 10 years versus five years of tamoxifen. What's the bottom line in terms of what they reported and what you think it means? Well, what they reported was, as certainly the lay press took to town, is that there were less recurrences if you took longer duration tamoxifen, regardless of menopausal status. I mean, these patients were postmenopausal in the ATLAS trial, but, you know, they didn't do anything particularly swift to try and figure out if they were in menopause. 
They didn't triage patients based on risk, but the trial was complicated because they didn't actually know the ER status of all of the tumors, and the compliance was quite variable, and some patients took longer therapy even though they were randomized to shorter, and some patients didn't take the longer therapy who were assigned to that arm. So they tried by, they had over 10,000 patients, they tried by looking at the slightly over 6,000 patients reported to narrow it down to patients where they had accurate information. They weren't able to look at survival, and there's no survival difference, but we're used to seeing that in hormone receptor positive disease. Patients live a long time, even with recurrence, so we can't really look at that endpoint. So where do we take that back to our practice? Well, actually, you know, prior to this, the combined results of Atlas and Adam had already shown through modeling that there was less recurrence. We've seen from MA17 that an AI after tamoxifen reduces risk of recurrence, and in higher risk patients improve survival. So what we understand now is that extending hormone therapy seems to reduce recurrence. What do we do for our patients? We don't want to give prolonged hormone therapy to everybody. So I think this is similar to, sort of takes us back to the beginning of our conversation. It's a risk stratification. A very small tumor, we're not going to extend hormone therapy. Larger tumors with higher residual risk I would extend hormone therapy. So I say to patients, let's look at what we estimate your risk to be. At five years, you have 50% of your remaining risk ahead of you. If that's a tiny percent and you're having a lot of side effects, we don't want to continue the hormone therapy. If it's a reasonable percentage, we should continue hormone therapy for a few years. We don't know what the right number of years is, but let's continue for a few more years and see how you do. That having been said, there will still be patients who recur. I'm treating a patient now who got CMF and 10 years of hormone therapy for a one centimeter tumor and recurred at 15 years. So we understand we're not going to cure everybody, but we're going to cure, my guess is, more people by extending hormone therapy. So, you know, it's interesting, and I've done a series of interviews of Sir Richard Pita over the last 20 years, and I did another one after Atlas. And it was interesting. I always have to read between the lines with him a little bit. But when I asked him the bottom line, it was interesting to me that he kind of said, we've proven that longer endocrine treatment is better than shorter endocrine treatment. He was very specific about those terminologies. And although he only looked at tamoxifen, I think the message was exactly what you just said. And it kind of ties in, too, in terms of what's going on with this disease. I mean, it's so different than many other solid tumors in terms of why you see these late relapses. Why do you see these delayed benefits from tamoxifen? I mean, I've asked people for years why. I probably asked you that. I don't even remember what you said. But any pet hypotheses about what's going on? Do you think this could be immune-related, stem cells? I mean, why do you think this happens? I mean, people recur 20 years later, and then they die. Indeed. I think that there is a component of immune response, and then there's a component of tumor cells sitting around and changing, and they change under pressure. And so the question is, you know, which we may not ever be able to answer, whether we would be better off using intermittent longer duration hormone therapy so that the tumors aren't always seeing the same environment. You know, that then what happens is a subset of these tumors will change and be able to grow in the environment they've seen, and that results in recurrence. It's sort of an escape from whatever control you've had. So I think that it's going to be due to multiple causes. One is this sort of change in the biology of the tumor 
genetic changes that allow it to escape. And the second is some immune surveillance alteration that allows these tumors to grow later. You know, you've got a few cells out there, they're the very slow growing, and they're hanging around, and a change in the environment results in a change in that tumor. And why it happens, we don't know. I mean, that's as close as I can get. It's a little on the fuzzy side, but it's as close as I can get to that idea. And I do agree that what we've shown so far, what we can infer is that longer duration hormone therapy should be used in patients who have higher risk. You know, I saw a patient recently who had 18 positive lymph nodes, and her oncologist had told her that there was no data after five years of an AI, so she should stop. And, you know, we had seen her when she first got diagnosed. So she came back to see me on my thoughts. And I said, look, you know, yes, we don't have data on extending AI therapy, but your residual risk is really huge. And you're alive without recurrence at five years. So what that means is you have hormone-sensitive disease. So my recommendation would be that you continue your AI for a few years. Maybe we'll get a little bit more data while you're on that AI. But the risk is so high, and the possibility of benefit exists from our studies. I think maybe if I'm a surgeon nowadays and I see a patient coming into me for follow-up or for any reason, you know, coming in for a biopsy or whatever, and I look back in their history and I see ER-positive disease, they got five years of some kind of hormonal therapy, now it's a couple years later, I think I'm sending them to an oncologist. (laughs) Maybe I won't deal with it myself, but I think they better talk to an oncologist. No, I think it's really important we have to discuss this. There are just so many issues now about how to treat even DCIS that a lot of people need to be involved. So you brought in a few interesting cases. Let's hear about your 27-year-old lady. Yeah, so actually it's kind of interesting. In the last few weeks, I've picked up two pregnant women who have breast cancer. And this patient is particularly interesting because it required a lot of collaboration between the surgeon and medical oncology in terms of trying to decide on the best approach. So this is a 27-year-old woman who is pregnant with her second child. She discovered a lump in her right lateral breast about mid-December of 2012, and she saw her OB on January 3rd who found a palpable lump. So a fine needle aspiration was done at the end of the month, which was atypia, estrogen and progesterone receptor positive in those cells, but without invasive cancer. So she then had a mammogram and ultrasound January 31st. At that point, she was just at I think close to the end of her first trimester. And the mammogram showed an ill-defined mass with the largest diameter 1.5 centimeters with calcifications that spanned 3.5 centimeters. She also had a second mass in her lower right breast with calcifications that measured 1.6 centimeters and a third mass at 6.30 measuring 1.1 centimeters. And two lymph nodes were seen on imaging with ultrasound with cortical thickening. So now you have a patient who's pregnant. She's now finished her first trimester. She has no interest in terminating her pregnancy. She has one child at home. She's 27. And she has three different lesions seen by mammogram and ultrasound, although on examination, these are not palpable. So although she found a lump in the right lateral mid-breast, there's really just you know, a tiny little lump there. It's like a half a centimeter. The rest of this disease is not at all palpable. And it spans really an entire quarter or maybe almost an entire half of her breast. So she had an ultrasound-guided biopsy then with a fine needle aspiration of the suspicious axillary node, which I have to say on exam is minuscule. I mean, it's not particularly impressive. 
The core biopsy showed a 1.2 centimeter grade one invasive ductal cancer, DCIS with calcifications, ER and PR positive. So ER was two plus and 80%, PR two plus and 60%, HER2 was zero by immunohistochemistry. The hospital that did this core biopsy did a KI-67, which we don't do at UCSF. The KI-67 was 30 to 40%. And the FNA of her axillary node was positive. So the, and where exactly is she in your pregnancy at that point? So at the point that I saw her now, right after this, she was 14 weeks pregnant. Okay. So what were you thinking at that point? So actually, the reason why I saw her is the surgeon said, you know, she has a lot of disease. I'd rather not do surgery in pregnancy. Maybe she could get neoadjuvant chemotherapy with doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide that we and others have a lot of experience with, and there's published safety data. And, you know, they were driven in part by the KI-67 being high and the extent of the tumor in several quadrants because this patient needs to have a mastectomy. And she's likely still going to need to have a mastectomy after her chemotherapy because of the quadrants that are involved and the calcifications in DCIS. So hard to do a mastectomy in the middle of pregnancy. So what to do? So I saw her, and my thoughts were, I was concerned, obviously it took a little while to piece together all these information, but I was concerned about this low-grade tumor in a patient with a lot of circulating hormones, reasonably strongly ERPR positive. So the question that I had was, you know, can I believe that KI-67 of 30 to 40%? Is this a proliferative tumor? Because the other features are discordant. So it didn't make a lot of sense. She has a positive node and she's very young. Interestingly, she has one cousin who had breast cancer at a older age, ER positive, but otherwise her family history was very unremarkable. So we actually did two things. So I said, I have to gather together all this information and review your pathology, which we did, and we agreed. The KI-67, very difficult to interpret, 30 to 40%. So I said, how am I gonna get to this? I'll send a recurrence score. I'm not gonna use recurrent score in the end to really say no chemotherapy, but it will help me get an idea of how likely it is that her tumor will shrink with chemotherapy. What I was anxious about was giving chemotherapy to a slow proliferating tumor while she's got a lot of hormones around because then maybe the tumor could even be growing. I mean, there's just an anxiety about what you do in that situation. I mean, if nothing else, you can get some idea of proliferation, because I don't think you can, I mean, can you trust key 67 at all? Well, I think it's very hard. It's particularly hard in pregnancy because the breast is very proliferative in pregnancy, so we have no idea what it means in that setting. But I don't generally trust the KI-67, no, unless we do it in a very, very standardized way. So the other thing I did was refer her for genetic counseling because she's so young and she meets all criteria, even in the absence of family history, for testing. So um, I'm going to guess she's BRCA negative and has a low recurrence score. So first we found the recurrence score before I got the results of her BRCA back, which is hot off the presses. Actually, it was just from earlier this week. But her recurrence score was 16. So it's on the low side. And it does go along with my supposition that this is not a highly proliferative tumor and that KI-67 is unrelated probably to what her tumor is doing. Although so obviously we need more tissue to know for sure. So I'm not sure if that made you feel better or worse, but I'm guessing better. Well, it made me feel better about making a recommendation to the surgeon and working with the surgeon. So I talked to the surgeon. I said, look, I don't feel comfortable starting with chemo. And we also referred her to see our high-risk OBs and talked to them about when to do surgery in this patient. And 
I took pen to paper and calculated out if I give her doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide every three weeks, when will she be done? Will she be done at 28 weeks? I'm not going to sit around and watch that tumor until she gets to be 35 weeks. And the OBs are absolutely clear they don't want to deliver before 35 weeks if they can help it, right? They don't want to have a little tiny baby with lots of problems. And they also said something very interesting, which is that surgery in pregnancy is much safer before the third trimester. Because in the third trimester, you got that baby pushing on your diaphragm, and you have more baby to be exposed to the anesthesia. So there's two different issues, both maternal and child safety. It kind of flew by me a little bit there, but what is the issue with doing mastectomy during pregnancy? It's really just for the patient themselves. It's uh, not that, a technical issue? No. It, you know, it's a little technical. The breast is very vascular and certainly... It's not a problem to do a mastectomy, but, you know, the breast is very vascular. And the big question is, you know, what do you do about reconstruction? Now you've got this huge breast full of milk on one side after delivery and during pregnancy that's growing and you have a mastectomy on this side. It's just not ideal to have a surgery that removes your breast in the middle of your pregnancy, no matter how you look at it. So... In any case, for this particular patient, I couldn't see a way around doing surgery up front. And so I said, look, you know, I think she needs to have a mastectomy now. Unfortunately, that means we also have to do a node dissection. She has positive nodes. And then we'll still be early in our pregnancy, right? And so then I'm going to give her, depending on what the pathology shows, but likely I'll give her four cycles of doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide. She'll deliver, and then we'll decide about additional chemotherapy afterwards. What about hormone therapy are you thinking about? Well, that's the thing. You can't do anything during pregnancy. But I mean afterwards. So afterwards. She's uh, premenopausal, clearly. She's premenopausal, and she has positive axillary nodes. So my general approach in those women is to use, particularly in women very young, under the age of 35, is to use a combination of ovarian suppression and tamoxifen. She has additional complications in that she's undocumented, and so the issue about what happens to her long-term care remains a little bit unclear. Wow. What's she thinking about future childbearing? Well, now comes the second part, which I learned this week, is that she does have a BRCA2 mutation. Hmm. And so she's actually not fluent in English either, but we had a long discussion about it. She understands what's going on. And we certainly would not do bilateral mastectomies during pregnancy for prophylactic purposes. So she'll have her unilateral mastectomy have an expander placed. And then after she delivers, we'll discuss additional risk-reducing surgery. Because of her situation, it's still very unclear. And, you know, I'm not going to push that decision now, what she'll plan to do. But certainly, thankfully, this is her second pregnancy, because I think future pregnancies may be very, very difficult for her. And if, for example, she decides that she's not interested in future childbearing and she wants at some point after she delivers to have her ovaries taken out for BRCA reasons, what kind of hormone therapy would you put on top of that? I would still use tamoxifen. It's the same idea. It's ovarian suppression and tamoxifen. I have found that in premenopausal women, if you use the combination of ovarian suppression or ovarectomy and an AI, that you cause really severe estrogen deprivation symptoms, and it's not clearly better for those women. You know, at some point, you could always 
add an AI on in sequence. So for example, if you had node positive breast cancer, maybe when they reach you know three to five years of tamoxifen, you could start an AI. At that point, the patient is better adjusted to the sort of menopausal state, and you're in a better situation. In terms of additional childbearing, you know, for a patient who has node positive, ER positive disease and a BRCA mutation, the problem is you know, you're going to want to give her at least five years of hormone therapy before she considers another child. The clock is ticking in terms of her risk of additional cancers. And so you're kind of in a bad situation for additional childbearing. It's obviously her decision, but, you know, you figure then she's going to be 10 years out before she's considering prophylactic oophorectomy. And it's just a very complicated situation. And just to go back on this case, because this pretty interesting way to use an oncotype. Suppose a recurrent score had been high. Then I would have felt more comfortable with giving chemotherapy. She has HER2 normal disease, so I don't worry about going over four cycles of doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide. And so I could probably have gotten her out to 35 weeks with giving it every three weeks and giving five cycles if her ejection fraction was stable. And I would have felt much more comfortable with that approach. So let's finish out talking about your 59-year-old woman. So we have one really interesting case that I think it was a collaboration, again, between surgery and medical oncology in a way that really worked well for this patient. She actually lives quite far away and came to our center for both her oncologic and surgical treatment. So she's a 59-year-old woman who in August of 2012 found two lumps in her right breast. And on mammogram, she had a periareolar mass, and an intramammary lymph node in the right upper quadrant, what was thought to be an intramammary node. And these were new from a year prior imaging. So the ultrasound showed that the periareolar mass, which was at 3 o'clock, was 2.3 centimeters. And then this round thing that looked like a lymph node at 9 o'clock, 5 centimeters from the nipple, 1.2 centimeters, so kind of axillary tail but not in the axilla. So she had a biopsy of the periareolar lesion and it showed invasive ductal cancer, grade three, ER three plus, 90%, PR two to three plus and two to five percent, essentially negative. So strongly ER positive, PR negative, high grade, HER2 zero. And so she went to a surgeon who recommended that she have a mastectomy, but a friend of hers who's an oncologist said you should really have additional evaluation, including an MRI to see what else is going on. So she asked for an MRI, was ordered. She's still not seeing us. And she had a 2.3 centimeter central mass and a 1.5 centimeter mass in the upper outer quadrant. The left breast was clear. This is all right breast. So then she has an MRI of her chest. And I never really quite understood. I think that it was part of a misordering, you know, that she had both. And that showed a mass into the right lobe of her liver and a mass in her kidneys. So there was a lot of confusion. It turned out that both of these were cysts, even though they were large and not a problem. So then she comes down to UCSF. By now, she's completely freaked out. And, you know, she lived in Oregon, so she came quite a distance. We reviewed her pathology, and we agreed that this was grade 3, ER positive, HER2 negative. And we also looked at the biopsy they had done of the rounded lesion in the upper outer quadrant, and it had a lymphocytic infiltrate along with invasive cancer consistent with a possible lymph node. We did an MRI. We saw that the tumor was a little bit bigger. There was a little more enhancement, 3.3 centimeters. We also saw this second round mass in the upper outer right breast, and it was an abnormal appearing right internal intramammary node. 
So I then also on the MRI, there was a node seen high at the level of the aortic arch measuring 1.4 centimeters. So a little concerning for an internal mammary node. And a PET-CT scan actually showed a hypermetabolic enlarged right internal mammary node thought to potentially represent a node metastasis, although the node was small. And a few other things which we evaluated, you know, the same kind of thing. PET-CT is always giving us all sorts of additional information we didn't want to know about. So we talked to her and recommended neoadjuvant therapy. She really did not want to have a mastectomy. Our surgeon saw her and felt that breast-conserving surgery would be close to impossible at that time based on what we saw on MRI and the need to remove both the right upper outer quadrant and the central breast. What was her breast size? She had probably C-cup breasts. And it was very difficult to think about it. And our surgeons will do breast-conserving surgery when many won't because all they do is breast cancer, and they're very aggressive in trying to preserve breast. So we actually, you know, I knew that she was going to get chemotherapy. She had grade 3 disease, and I was really worried about the internal mammary node. She enrolled on our iSpy2 neoadjuvant chemotherapy program, had a mamma print, which was high-risk. So then she received neoadjuvant therapy with weekly paclitaxel with a novel agent. So she received a novel agent along with it as part of our iSpy trial and actually a fascinating agent. But partway through, after you finish the 12 weeks of neoadjuvant paclitaxel, you get an MRI. And the MRI after 12 weeks showed marked decrease in the size of the inner primary tumor. And so the small residual mass only measured seven millimeters. So big decrease down from over three centimeters and very little residual enhancement. Interestingly, the lymph node, the intramammary lymph node in the upper outer quadrant didn't change at all. And that looked about the same and still looked abnormal. We got a PET-CT because of this internal mammary node. And the PET-CT thought we had removed the tumor because they couldn't see it anymore. They said surgery has happened, which was, of course, not the case. You could see the node still. And the internal mammary node was still present, but it was no longer FDG-AVID, which was encouraging. And that node measured, you know, about a centimeter. So then she received doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide every two weeks, dose dense for four cycles. And at the end of that, the MRI showed, again, that there was a little bit of enhancement around the primary tumor, but almost none, and the node in her upper outer quadrant. And a PET-CT showed, again, this slightly bigger than one centimeter right internal mammary node, but absolutely no uptake. So the surgeon and the plastic surgeon met with her. You know, she had been the one who really wanted to have breast conserving surgery. And they said, look, you know, you've had a great response. We can take out both of these lesions separately. They aren't contiguous. And try breast conserving surgery because you can always go on to a mastectomy. And she felt very comfortable with that approach. So she went ahead and had surgery actually on February 15th of this year, 2013, a right lumpectomy, sentinel lymph node biopsy. She actually had 1.7 centimeters of residual invasive ductal cancer, but basically it was clusters of atypical cells in a lymphoid infiltrate. So the cellularity was actually less than 5%. And the myoepithelial stain was negative, but it was really hard to tell which was invasive or in situ disease. 
She had 3.4 centimeters of residual DCIS, and the intramammary node was 0.5 centimeters with residual disease. All of her margins were negative. She had two negative sentinel lymph nodes, and a thorough evaluation of her axilla pre-neoadjuvant therapy was also negative. So this is a patient who now will go on to radiation therapy and receive, obviously, adjuvant hormone therapy. But she really had an excellent result from neoadjuvant treatment and was able to go ahead with breast conserving surgery, which was her primary goal from the beginning. Her radiation will include the internal mammary node, which is something we don't normally do.